Hey, Salt Lake, at the risk of being too personal, is your mattress sagging? If you are rolling into a taco every night, I am begging you to visit your local mattress warehouse and just try something a little firmer. Your spine is the center of your being, and I don't just want you to have good posture. I want you to Disney princess your way around this city, flush with optimism from a good night's sleep. Visit mattresswarehouseutah.com to find the location nearest you. That's mattresswarehouseutah.com. Here's what Salt Lake's talking about. A historic announcement from the FDA changes the rules about who can give blood. And our own hyperlocal blood bank, ARUP, might be one of the first in the nation to accept donations from sexually active gay and bisexual men. But there are still some hurdles. Memorial Day weekend kicks off the time of year when blood is most needed. So I got in the chair, gave some of my sweet, sweet A positive, and got the details. It's Tuesday, May 23rd. I'm Ali Vallarta, and this is CityCast Salt Lake. Dr. Wasim Anani, medical director for ARUP. As we speak, I am donating blood, <laughs> which I feel great about, to be clear. Um, we got big news recently when the FDA announced that they are upending a decades-old policy that bans sexually active gay and bisexual men from donating. Why this change now? Well, it's been years in the making. It started with a permanent deferral back in the 1980s when HIV was first identified and it was identified that it was predominantly clustering in gay men. So for the safety of the blood, decided that all gay and bisexual men that have sex with other men would be deferred for life if they've had sex with any other man since 1977. Wow. Okay. What role did stigma play in this policy? Because at a certain point, is that why it kind of kept on for so long? So I think initially when it started off, it was, I would say, for the most part, scientific, right? They noticed that there was clustering in gay men. And at the time, before HIV testing came out, the one in about 2,500 units was contaminated with HIV. Mm. And when you get a transfusion with HIV, you're almost 100% likely to get HIV from that transfusion. Yeah. So it was a scientific decision to protect the public, especially those that are getting the transfusions. And I think over time, it just became... A thing where it became biased in a stereotype of gay men in terms of donating, yeah. which is why it, it took so long for them to even make movement in that direction. It wasn't until, you know, 2015 when it became a 12-month deferral. So if you had sex with another man in the last 12 months, you were deferred. And then in 2020, it became shorter. And now we're at the point where we're moving away from the idea of having sex with another man deferring you for three months. And now it's based more on the sex act than who you're sleeping with. Okay. So what exactly is the new policy then? Like how does someone know if they're eligible? So the old policy was if you were a gay or bisexual man that had sex with another man, you were deferred. And that was the end of the story. Those questions are now gone. And now there are essentially three questions that have been produced. The first one is, have you had a new sexual partner in the last three months? And this is being asked irrespective of whether you identify as male or female. Uh. Then if you answer yes, and you, let's say you 
just started dating someone and you've just started having sex, you'll answer yes to that question. The next question that you'll be asked is, have you had anal sex with that partner in the last three months? If you answer yes, then you're deferred for three months because the anal sex part is the part that puts you at risk, higher risk, I should say, of having HIV or getting HIV. So this could actually have a ripple effect for all donors because it might make some people that were previously eligible ineligible. Yes. So there was this epidemiologic study and it had nothing to do with this particular topic where they looked at straight individuals or people that identified as straight having anal sex. And they found that about 30% of straight people have anal sex in the last year. Now, that doesn't mean that they weren't in a monogamous relationship where they were doing it, but that means that there will be some people who identify as straight. They're now going to be deferred when they weren't before. So it may be a surprise to them when they show up and say, I'm in a new relationship. And yes, I've had anal sex and therefore you're deferred for three months. So this policy change, I mean, of course, we all get the breaking news alerts and we just assume that these things immediately go into effect and they are evermore. What is it going to look like for ARUP to roll out this change? Yeah, I wish we could flip a switch and have it go live the next day. Unfortunately, you can imagine that never having asked anything like this before in the past, we have to train our staff and get them up to date with new terminology and getting comfortable with the idea of even saying anal sex with a a donor who's never had to talk about this before. Hmm. We also have to update all of our IT systems. And when you update an IT system, because we're FDA regulated, we have a lot of measures that require us to show that it's going to work exactly the way that it needs to work and that no one, when they go into the system and they're answering questions, can somehow cause a glitch in the system. So there's a lot of back-end work that has to happen before we're even ready. So most blood centers, not just ARUP, will take months before they can actually go live with this policy. So then when could gay and bisexual Utahns anticipate being able to donate here fall? ARUP is moving pretty rapidly. One of the perks of being a smaller blood center is that we can pivot much more quickly than some of the larger ones. Mm -hmm. And so we're anticipating in the next few months we'll be able to go live sooner rather than later, to be honest. How do you anticipate that the queer community is going to respond to this? Or have you already started getting messages from people who either want to donate or maybe don't? It's a difficult line to really balance because the reality is the FDA looks at this as a population-based thing. Mm -hmm. So in the last three decades, there's never been a transfusion transmitted HIV case from blood because of their policies. So they see it as all or nothing kind of a thing because they don't want any risk of anyone who receives blood to have the potential of having HIV, which is understandable. But when you look at this at the person or individual level, it's extremely discriminatory and biased, right? So we have this push and pull as a physician being stuck in the middle of it in that the FDA wants no risk, but on an individual level, it is discriminatory in a way. And the, the reason is the FDA has, you know, kind of stamped this as an individual risk assessment of you as a person, what your risk is of having an infectious disease and passing it on potentially through blood. The reality is we don't ask enough questions for it to be truly individualized. We don't ask about condom use. We also don't ask about the type of anal sex. So people that are the insertive partner in anal sex actually have the same risk of getting HIV as someone who has vaginal sex. It's the receiving partner in anal sex that actually has a higher risk. Mm. But the FDA doesn't ask that question. And in their reasoning stated that when they develop questions, they have psychologists and they do surveys with individuals to see how they understand the question. The problem they ran into was many donors that were reading it didn't quite understand what receptive and insertive anal sex was, or they misunderstood it in a way that they didn't answer it in the way that they would have if they had more information or follow up 
to the question itself. So the other little, it's not even little, big hiccup in all of this is that PrEP, pre-exposure prophylaxis, yep. is one of the greatest breakthroughs in modern medicine, right? It essentially prevents HIV when you're taking it. And in the group that we're talking about, they're highly recommended to be on it if they're having anal sex. Mm -hmm. The problem is PrEP prevents you from being able to donate blood. Oh, okay. That is a hiccup. Yeah. So their reasoning is that when you're on PrEP, and let's say you come into contact with HIV, you would potentially have a little bit of HIV in your system until you can clear the infection. Now, if you're having sex with someone else and you're exchanging bodily fluids, that amount isn't enough to transmit HIV when you're on PrEP because it does its job, you clear it and it's gone. But when you're donating blood, that little bit in a 500 mil bag is actually a lot and it's enough to potentially cause HIV in someone else if you're still clearing the infection when you're on PrEP. The other difficulty is the testing that we do PrEP decreases the amount of RNA from HIV in your bloodstream, okay. and it decreases your ability to potentially respond with an antibody if you were to happen to contract it, which means that it takes us longer to detect it in the lab or we might miss it. So if you're on PrEP, we could potentially miss someone that is, let's say, clearing the infection. And even though they are fully safe and they are fine on a global scale, taking someone's blood and putting it into someone else's veins could transmit the virus while they're still clearing it. Yeah. So it's a bit of a tricky situation because it was, as a public health thing, it is an amazing blockbuster idea and medication and everything. But on a transfusion side of things, it really puts a hamper on a lot of stuff for us. So just to make sure I understand, does this mean that moving forward though the regulation has changed and the questions changed that could open the door for men who have sex with men to donate, if they are on PrEP, they still will not be able to donate. Yes. If they're on oral PrEP, they can't donate three months from their last dose. If they're on the injectable version, it's two years. So it's quite a long time, unfortunately. Yeah. Well, I want to ask you, because you brought up yourself that this policy has been discriminatory. So how do blood donation centers like this one rebuild trust with a community that the policy has discriminated against? Because, I mean, you need as many donors as possible, right? Yeah, it's, you know, obviously, as a physician, it's a tough line to walk. You know, I'm required to uphold the FDA regulations. And at the same time, I understand at the person level that, you know, it has caused harm. So the way that we're approaching this is that I'm doing my very best to train our staff, and I'm personally doing it myself, mm -hmm. for the most part. And when a the donors come in, I'm making sure that because I've talked to every single one of our staff members, when they talk to a donor, they're going to be able to be compassionate and empathetic. And also, you know, if they need to apologize and make sure that they feel comfortable coming into our doors and make sure that they're using language that makes our donors feel comfortable to come in and donate. And, you know, I have no problem speaking to donors if they have any concerns or questions. And as much as I would love to say that we've gone as far as we need to go, there's obviously there's more runway for us to, to hit. And so what I can promise is that we're going to do our best to hit the landmark that the FDA allows us to, and we're going to keep asking for them to push the envelope forward and allow us to move in a way that is less discriminatory and makes the questions open so that everyone can donate who's able to donate you know, based on the scientific literature. Salt Lake City, what if this is the year you host Easter dinner or brunch? Harmon's makes big meals easy to prepare with delicious holiday specialties made from scratch. Just heat and serve, baby. 
Lay a pre-cooked honey ham on the table and absorb the compliments from your family or friends. They don't need to know you napped instead of staring down the oven. And if you're not the host but need something to bring, here are just a few of my favorite spring ideas. First of all, Harmon's fragrant Easter lilies will impress anybody's mom or delight a neighbor. Now there's no need to even heat up a pre-made side like deviled eggs or fresh cut pineapple, but bonus points if you transfer them into your own dish. And as listeners of this show well know, I will lose my mind if you show up to my house with Harmon's hot cross buns. I invite you to make some new Easter traditions with Harmon's. Blood is always in demand. I know because I get the calls from your team saying it's time. It's been eight weeks. Let's go. But my understanding is that it's in even more demand in the summer. Why is that? So in the summertime, people are more active. They take road trips. And so things like traumatic injuries are far more common in the summertime. Mm. And also people take vacations during the summer. And so we have fewer donors coming in. And Uh. we need to hit about 100 donors a day in order for us to meet our demand at the University of Utah. So if people are on vacation and they're not showing up, and then we've got people who are getting traumatically injured and are requiring a lot of blood, you know, we're getting pulled on both ends of this and trying to keep up with the demand. A hundred donors a day. You need a hundred people a day to walk through the store. That is a huge number. What percentage of those people can usually even give at the end of, because you have to go through a questionnaire and things like that. Yeah, about 20% of people will be deferred, or that means that they answer a question and it doesn't allow them to donate that particular day. Yeah. And there are a variety of reasons. The most common reason is that someone's hematocrit or red blood cell count is too low. Mm. Um, and that typically happens most often in women yep. and especially in younger individuals. Yeah. Or when we're menstruating. Yes, yep. exactly. Yep. What happens if you don't meet demand? There's a couple of things that we do to kind of buffer all of that. The first is we collect enough blood for more than just one day's use. We usually have more than a few days on hand of blood for the university. And so that if we have one bad day, it doesn't harm us over the long term because we can catch up over the next few days. Now, if this continues or we get, let's say, someone who uses a lot of blood overnight and now we're finding ourselves the next day really short, we'll put out an appeal to donors and ask them to come and donate. We can also ask other blood centers that are collecting around the country to help us out and we'll purchase some blood from them and bring it in-house so that we can support our own needs. Yeah, this is kind of a niche question, but I've always wondered this, like the U is a level one trauma center. If they have a patient that's either being flown in or brought in in an emergency vehicle, like how much blood does that patient need? I imagine it's not one-to-one, like I donate a bag of blood someone else needs one bag of blood. It varies by the individual and the type of injury. Um, Most trauma patients that come in only need a few units, but then, you know, sometimes we we hit a run where we have patients that use 40, 50, or 100 units. Wow. And so it ends up being more, you know, than what we can produce, let's say, in a day. Mm -hmm. Because if we have 100 donors walk in in a day and one donor happens to use over 100 units, well, That's more than what we made for that one day. And so now we're trying to catch up. And if you remember, people have different blood types. And so those 100 people that come in may not be the same blood type that we would have used on that individual. So when the inventory takes a hit, it takes a hit on a very specific blood type. And so then that's when those phone calls go out to specific donors to help us replenish what we need. 
Right. What do you need the most of? We always need O neg and O pos. Okay. Um, o negative is the universal donor type, and O positive we use for traumatic injuries for especially men. Mm-hmm. But we're always in need of really all blood types because we can use anyone's blood for producing, for example, platelets, and that's kind of uh, irrespective of someone's blood type. So we're always in need of, of people with good veins who are willing to come and donate. So when you say one unit, like today, am I giving one unit of blood? So yes, you're giving one unit and that one unit will be converted into two different products. The red part of it or the red cell will be spun out and we'll take it and put it in another bag and your plasma will be spun out away from your platelets and we'll keep the plasma for a patient. And then the platelets essentially get lost in the filter. So you get two products for every one of your donations. What's the pitch for giving to ARUP instead of other blood banks? We don't have to mention them. (laughs) (laughs) Well, I always tell everyone that I've been to other blood centers. I've worked at other blood centers. I have to be honest. We actually, and this is extremely superficial. And I, okay. I will fully admit that. You're the prettiest. We, In terms of <laughs> snacks, we are. We have the best snacks. We spend a lot of money on like the brand name snacks. And it's not like the <laughs> random pretzels that you get off the shelf from like the airlines. These are nice snacks. We have like fruit loaf roll-ups and stuff. And the other day I saw circus animals and those are expensive <laughs> sna- snacks. But the truth is that we're we're local. We don't ship outside of the state and everything that everything that's collected in Utah stays in Utah 100%. And we actually have it set up such that by law, we can't even ship across state lines. Hmm. So anything that's donated within our domain stays in Utah. Well, we are the sole supplier to the University of Utah, but we help out other hospitals in the area when they're run short, when their blood supplier, who's not us, can't provide them with anything, we often will give them whatever they need to help them out. Okay. Last question, because I get this so often. People tell me they're afraid of needles. What's the pitch for people who might be a little trepidatious about coming in to give? So most people don't know this. I am afraid of looking at my own blood and I will pass (laughs) out, but I can look at, I can look at you getting stuck. I can look at anyone, but when I see my own blood, I get really nervous. Yeah. Um, And one of the nice things about our staff is a lot of them have been here a long time. Um, and because we're local and we're not national, our people tend to stay and they stay here for good. And they're really good at sticking people. You don't feel it as much as, for example, you were to go somewhere and you had someone newer or you, there was a rotating you know, right. stock of people. Um, they're really good at making you feel at ease. And again, one of the perks of being a local blood center is you feel like you're at home when you walk in. All these people live here. They live in the area. And you know, when you come in more than once, they'll know you by name. And it, when you're put at ease, it makes it easier to have someone stick you with a needle and not pass out. Totally. I also think like the needle stick, like the actual blood drying portion is the easiest part. It's everything before when you're like a little nervous or they prick your finger to test your hemoglobin. Like Yes, the finger prick actually, interestingly enough, hurts more than the actual needle in the arm. And yeah. when you're, they're drawing the blood, it it only takes between eight to 10 minutes and you're done. It's everything else a part of the, that's part of the donation actually takes longer. Making sure we feed you snacks and give you water and all the other stuff. You actually take longer eating than you do donating the unit of blood. Listen, I'm sold. <laughs> Dr. Wasimanani, medical director for ARUP. Thank you so much for your time. Thank you. Yes, this FDA announcement is historic. But how far is the agency still from truly ending discrimination in blood donations? Gay pathologist Benjamin Mazur wrote a piece for The Atlantic called The FDA's New Don't Say Gay Policy for Blood Donation. 
In it, he shares data from the UK showing that the new FDA policy still leaves up to 50% of men who have sex with men ineligible to donate, whereas risk-oriented questioning would only impact less than 2% of current donors. To quote Mazur, if the new rule's net effect is that gay and bisexual men are turned away from blood centers at many times the rate of heterosexual individuals, what else can you call it but discrimination? The U.S. guidance is supposed to ban a lifestyle choice rather than an identity. But the implication is that too many queer men have chosen wrong. That is all for us today here on CityCast Salt Lake. Thank you for listening. We will be back tomorrow morning with more from around this city. Bye. Bye.